Hi guys, I'm Emily Chen Newton, but you can just call me Emily. And this is Six Feet of Science, a kid's show in a time of social distancing. You call in with your questions and I find someone to answer those questions over the phone, way more than six feet away. We share science, not germs. So you've all probably heard about this virus, this sickness spreading around our country and our community right now. Your parents have maybe been telling you to wash your hands more. Maybe even you know someone who got sick. And then you were told that you couldn't go to school anymore, right? Which maybe seemed kind of fun at first, but maybe also a little bit scary or just weird. And you might even miss your teachers. Don't worry, I won't tell them if you do. And that is why we created this show, to answer some of your most curious questions about science that just can't wait until you go back to school. Each episode, I'll take the questions that you've called in and I'll find really smart people to answer them. So it seems that a lot of you guys have questions about the coronavirus and other viruses right now. So we thought it would be a good place to start for our first episode to talk about some very basics of how viruses work. And actually, that was one of the questions that you guys called in with. This first question comes from Brennan Purcell, and he wants to know, how does a virus work in the body? Here's Brennan's question. I am Brennan Purcell, and my question is, what is the process of viruses going through the body? So I've called up Dr. Ted Cislack. He is an expert in infectious disease, and he's a pediatrician. He's going to help us answer this question. Hi, Ted. Thank you for getting on the phone with me today. Sure, and uh, thanks, Brennan, for an interesting question. So I think in order to answer your question, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, most of you have probably heard in biology class that there are plants and there are animals. <clears throat> but really, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Beyond the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, there are uh, several other life forms. There's fungus, there's bacteria. And then finally, at the borderline between life and non-life, uh, is a whole category of organisms called viruses. So uh, viruses in the minds of most scientists are not truly living things, uh, but they are the ultimate parasite. They uh, can reproduce themselves only by taking over the genetic machinery of another organism. So, so Ted, when you say genetic machinery, I'm not sure what that is. What do you mean by my, my cell's genetic machinery? I think you could compare it to a factory. Um, so just like there are factories that make all sorts of things, um, our body's cells are little factories. They produce energy. Uh, they produce proteins and digestive enzymes and muscle uh, and everything that our body needs. And um, again, in this case, I think you can look at this as the virus is hijacking uh, your factory and taking it over and using it to build what it wants to build rather than what you need to build. All right. And so if, if we're in this factory, some of the things that you've probably heard people talk about in school, you've heard the phrase DNA. And if that's kind of like the plan, the blueprint for making the cars or whatever in your factory, then the RNA is kind of like a copy of that plan that gets sent around to other places in the factory. And both of those are really important 
for your cells to grow and continue to live. Yes, that's right. So in the case of COVID, it gets uh, gains access to your uh, respiratory epithelial cells. So the epithelial cells, so those are the cells on the that line the body cavities. So like on the inside of uh, the parts of our body that help us breathe. Right. And so when the virus does gain access to those cells, it takes over their genetic machinery. So the cell now, instead of working to reproduce the proteins it needs, starts doing the virus's dirty work. And essentially, the cell ends up being a factory for the production of new virus. And the problem with that is uh, the cell is usually ultimately killed. So when we have a cold, for example, and we're coughing and sneezing up mucus, uh, that mucus is filled with dead skin cells or dead epithelial cells, rather, uh, that have been infected with the virus, have died and have been shed off. So before the body can ultimately heal itself, when the virus is attached to those receptors and, and kind of doing its dirty work on your cells, are you saying that it actually changes the DNA inside of my cells? No, but it takes over your gen- the genetic machinery for its own purposes. So there's DNA in your cells, and you use that DNA to make messenger RNA, and which is a very similar compound. And then that messenger RNA is translated into proteins, and you use those proteins to do everything, to make muscle, uh, to make new cells, to to basically do everything that your body needs to do uh, to survive. So a virus can be a DNA virus or it can be an RNA virus. In the case of COVID, that's an RNA virus. So it doesn't need to gain access to your DNA, but what it does once it gets inside the cell is it acts as if it were your cell's own RNA Um, And it starts uh, the process of making copies of its own protein. So your cell, instead of making the proteins it needs, is making the proteins the virus needs. So it doesn't actually change your DNA or your RNA, but it kind of takes it over and, and uses it for whatever it wants to do instead of what it would usually do to keep your body growing and healthy. Is that right? That's correct. So in in essence, your cell becomes a factory for the virus, uh, producing new copies of the virus. And that might be okay in the case of a lot of viruses, except uh, number one, as we said earlier, um, your cell ultimately often dies. But then number two, and very important in the case of COVID, your own body in the course of trying to get rid of this virus mounts an immune response. So an immune response, that's basically a whole system of lots of different parts of our body that work together to try to keep us healthy. So if some kind of germs or bacteria or virus comes inside of our body, the immune system is all the different parts of the body that try to fight that. That's correct. So in the case of COVID, for example, the virus gets into the respiratory tract, into the airway and into the lungs. And then the immune response trying to fight that virus causes a lot of fluid and proteins 
to be excreted into the lungs and a lot of inflammation occurs and our lung tissue swells and that makes it hard for us to breathe. So if you looked at the airways if into someone's lungs, uh, you would see that they were red and inflamed and swollen. But it's important to say that this is all part of the body's natural immune system. And, and you could think about that like if you have ever gotten a cut on your finger and what happens if the cut gets infected, it gets kind of red and puffy and swollen right there. And, and that's kind of the same thing that would be happening inside of your lungs in different airways, right? That's exactly right. So you get that cut and it may hurt for a while. Um, it may get red, it may get swollen. Um, and you know that most of the time, even though it's annoying and it may hurt and it may be red, most of the time it gets better and you go on with your life and you live happily ever after. So that's what we uh, would like to see happen with most COVID cases. Uh, people get better uh, and live happily ever after. But we know that um, in some people, especially uh, older people who already have some health problems, uh, they may not recover as readily as uh, someone as young as you would. So how do viruses spread then from one person to another? Well, viruses can um, spread in a number of ways. But in this case, in the case of COVID, um, this virus is spread by respiratory droplets. Um, and respiratory droplets develop when someone coughs or sneezes. And it's important to say that respiratory droplets may just sound like a really fancy science word for snot, but it's not exactly snot, right? Like we're talking about very, very, very small droplets that we can't really see with just our eyes. Right. So um, snot would certainly be dangerous if you sneezed into your hand and had a bunch of snot on your hand and touched the doorknob. That would be um, dangerous. But um, when you cough or you sneeze, uh, a lot of the particles that you give off are very, very small. The good news is those droplets only travel about six feet. So um, if you stay six feet away from uh, a person who is sick, then you're pretty well protected from this virus. Which is where we got the name for our show in this time of social distancing. We're called Six Feet of Science. Great. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with us before you go? Um, I would leave you with the thought that I think good news is coming. This has obviously been um, a scary time for a lot of us, a time of a lot of worry. We're uh, locked in our houses. Um, we're not able to see our friends as often as uh, we would like. We're not able to participate in activities or go to our favorite restaurants or shows. Uh, but I think good news is on the horizon. Um, I think uh, scientists are working uh, more quickly than they ever have. Uh, we worry that um, this virus could be seasonal, that maybe if it goes away this summer, it could come back next fall. But I'm pretty confident um, that if it ever did come back, that by the time it did, we would have um, some good therapies with which to battle it. Well, that is a nice positive thought to end on. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Look forward to seeing the final product.
All right. Well, our next question is not about viruses or bugs or germs. It's about bumblebees. This next question comes from Juniper, and here's what she wants to know. Where does the nectar go in the bee's tummy? Does it bring them back to the hive and turn into honey? This is Juniper's mom. Um, She's really interested in bees right now. She wants to know when a bee drinks nectar, does it bring it back in its belly to the hive and make it into honey? Thanks. So to help me answer this question, I called up a real-life beekeeper. Her name is Dr. Carol Fastbinder-Orth. She and her husband own a bee company called Bountiful Blossoms Bee Company. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, no, to be (laughs) here. (laughs) So tell me how you started working with bees. So my parents are professional beekeepers, and so I started working with bees when I was a little girl. So when I was just a couple of years old, even, my parents would take me to the bee yard. And so I started uh, at a very young age understanding and playing with bees, and I had a lot of fun working with them. So hopefully you can help us answer Juniper's question. So okay. Juniper wants to know what happens to the nectar once it goes into the bee's belly? And how does it turn into honey? So that's a really good question. So bees are pollinators, and so they get nectar and also pollen from plants. And nectar is really watery. When bees use their little tongues, their proboscis, to get nectar out of the plants, and they take it into something called a honey stomach. They have a separate stomach just for honey. Bees have a separate stomach just for honey? They do. They have a separate stomach called the honey stomach. I think I might have one of those. (laughs) We all have a little sweet stomach, don't we? But uh, in that stomach is where they bring the nectar, which has a lot of water. It has 80% of it is water. So the majority of it is water and the rest is sugar. And then they bring it into their little honey stomach. And they have little enzymes, little proteins that break down the sugar. And then they spit it back out into the cells of the hive. Oh, so they have to go all the way home to their hive before they can spit the sugar water, the nectar, back out again. Right. And sometimes it'll go from one bee to another bee to another bee. So they form a chain. They form a bee chain going from one bee to the next to transfer this partially digested nectar that ends up into the cell finally. So they're just a bunch of bees spitting at each other until they get home. Yes, yes. It's a it's a uniform uh, kind of fun little game that they have to play in order to transfer it. And nobody should drop anything, so it has to go from one to the other, and you have to save all of that spit. So then once they get home, where do they put it in the hive? Yes, so once they get home, and and all of these bees in the colony, they have different roles. And so the foragers are the ones that bring the honey back, bring the nectar back. But they're going to transfer it to other bees, nurse bees in the hive. And those bees, one after the other, as they're transferring it, will eventually put it into a little hexagon cell where they're going to store it. And once it's there, and they can make pounds and pounds of honey, maybe one colony can make 20 pounds of honey in a day, 
but there's too much water. So they have to beat their little wings and dehydrate it. They have to go from 80% water down to 17% water. So Carol, you're telling me that we turn this sugar water nectar into honey. The bees do all of that work just by flapping their little wings so fast that it sucks out the moisture? Correct. So there's what happens in their honey stomach. That's the first step. But the second step is what is happening inside of the cells to make it so that it's sticky and not just runny, slightly sweet water. Hmm. So it's kind of like on a hot day, if you have a fan blowing in your house, it might dry something out. If you if you spilled some Kool-Aid on the table, but you had a fan going, it's going to dry out that pool of Kool-Aid until it gets really sticky. Right. So it's evaporation, evaporative cooling. Now, what's interesting is that different flower types, different nectars have different amounts of water. So one floral type from soybeans. So if you think about farmers raising soybeans, bees can get a lot of honey off of soybeans, but the water, the amount of water in that nectar is really high. and It's really hard for the bees to get that into honey. So soybeans have a lot of nectar, but they're going to take a lot of work. A lot of wing flapping. That's right. And there's others that are actually getting ready to bloom soon that are locust trees. It's one of our best honeys that we produce here. The locust tree nectar has really low levels of water. And so the bees don't have to work as hard in order to be able to turn that nectar into honey. So just to recap for us, basically... The nectar gets turned into honey because the bees flap their little wings inside their hive. That is correct. Yes. And they have a special stomach where they can make the sugars just a little bit different so that it's easy to digest later. But their honey stomach is different from my honey stomach. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Where can we find out more about your bee company? So our bee company, you can go to bountifulblossomsbeecompany.com. Uh, Also, the National Honey Board, if you search that in Google, they have a lot of good information about honey and bees and also honey recipes. That that could be a good activity to do while we're all home uh, alone during this time. Maybe some granola, maybe some muffins. Different varietals of honey taste very different. And so you can also uh, have fun playing with different types of honey because it will end up making your end Um, recipe tastes very different if it's locust honey or if it's buckwheat honey or soybean honey. All will impart a flavor that's unique. That's something we'll have to try. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Well, that just about does it for us today. But I don't know about you. I'm pretty hungry from doing all of this thinking. So let's check in with Cheryl from the Kids Kitchen and see what she's got cooking for us today. Hey Emily, this is Cheryl, lead educator at the Omaha Children's Museum. If you're hungry, then I've got a thing for you. You can join me for Kitchen ABCs at the Omaha Children's Museum Facebook page. We're measuring and observing this week as we make chocolate hummus and crispy cinnamon tortillas. Yum! I hope to see you there. Thanks, Cheryl. That sounds delicious. I'm Emily, and you've been listening to Six Feet of Science. A big thanks to our expert explainers today and to Juniper and Brennan for their questions. Our theme music comes from Culture House. That's culture with an X. This podcast also features music from Colin Smith. Links to those musicians are on our website. You can find our show on KIOS.org. 
We also owe a big thanks to the Omaha Children's Museum with their kitchen ABCs. If you have a science question that just can't wait till you go back to school, grab a parent or an older sibling to help you make the call. That number is 531-299-9331. Leave me a voicemail with your name, your question. Oh, and be sure to let us know if it's okay to use your name and your voice on the show. And check in with us next week for more of Six Feet of Science. Sharing science, not germs.